Hey, critical thinkers. Today we're talking about something extremely important, and that is enhancing the brain, the hardware for our thinking. Last time we talked about mental performance, which is more of the software, the operating system. And today we're talking about the brain, the hardware, more like the computer. And this is going to be a long, technical, uh, scientific, nitty-gritty, but fun topic. So let's get into it. So this is healthy and awake, although I will say this episode in particular is less awake, less of the controversy and uh, borderline political sometimes. Uh, that's not what we're talking about today. Today is just the brain. And there's a lot to cover for the brain because there's a lot of different aspects of health that affect our brain. And I do want to mention first, I forgot to mention last time with flow state, which is the mental performance aspect of things. Someone really cool to check out is Harry Mack, who is a YouTube freestyle rapper. And even if you're not into that type of music, seriously, check it out because I talked about flow state being the pinnacle of mental performance and Harry Mack is a perfect example of that because he's broken records. He can, he's rapped live on YouTube for 10 straight hours, which is not possible unless you're in flow state, unless you have maximized your brain's performance, your mental performance. And it's pretty cool. So definitely check that out. His name is Harry Mack. I'll put a link in the show notes. But what we're talking about today are the different things that we can do that we have control over to influence our brain to be as healthy or as optimally performing as possible. And so a big portion of what I'm going to discuss are the six pillars of lifestyle medicine. This is something that comes out of the American College for Lifestyle Medicine. This is well known throughout the health coaching community. And it's basically six different categories of behaviors we can engage in that can affect our health for better or for worse, depending on how we uh, engage in those behaviors. And when I talk about this all the time with my clients, I like to tie all six pillars together with one word, and that word is inflammation. So ahead, I'm going to tell you what those six pillars are, but it's important to understand as we talk about the brain that if we engage in certain unhealthy behaviors, it could leave us uh, more inflamed, whether it's the brain or the body as a whole. We can be in an inflammatory state, which is certainly less than healthy, and that's going to slow down the performance of our brain. And I say this to highlight the importance of really thinking of the body as a whole, because we might be wanting to do some unhealthy behavior, like uh, let's just pick something, uh, excessively eating sugar. I, I want to eat 10 candy bars or something like that. Um, well, while on one hand, it's fine to engage in, in quote unquote, unhealthy behaviors from time to time, you know, we're free humans here just trying to enjoy life. But when we realize that inflammation can affect us holistically and especially can affect our brain, 
it can sort of add a different perspective to the behaviors that we engage in. This is not just a candy bar that I'm eating to enjoy it. This might be, if I'm interested in optimizing my brain's performance, that candy bar or 10 candy bars that I'm eating could be leaving me more inflamed, which can decrease mental performance at the very least. It can cause a whole host of other problems, but uh, we're going to get more into that. And I'm not trying to demonize candy bars. That's not what I'm trying to do. Uh, there's a healthy middle ground with everything. And one thing you see in the fitness community is people who don't understand this at all. It really drives me nuts with certain fitness gurus uh, who abide by this certain mentality of if it meets your macros, where they only focus on on weight loss, really, where it's like, oh, who cares if it's carbs or if it's sugar or if there's um, artificial ingredients in there. None of that matters because you can eat all that. And all that really matters is calories in, calories out. So I, you know, all I, I'm speaking here as a fitness, uh, hypothetically speaking as a fitness person here, my clients who come in, all I have them doing is eating. It doesn't matter what they're eating. They just have to eat a certain amount of calories. The rest doesn't matter. That type of mentality has fueled the health and fitness industry for a very long time now. And it's extremely toxic and, um, can be confusing to a lot of people. And it's not fair to present things that way. Uh, because the reality is that, uh, yes, a calorie is just a calorie, but the foods that we eat have a dramatic impact on the systems in our body. And it's incredibly oversimplistic to just go, well, it doesn't really matter what you eat uh, as long as you know you, you have just the right amount of calories. That oversimplistic mentality is, is very dangerous. Um, so I just wanted to get that out of the way and also mention that today's uh, really Half overview, half deep dive. Depends uh, what you want to hear to see what we go more into. But we're going to start here with food. Healthy food can have an incredible impact uh, on the brain. And so when we look at the six pillars of lifestyle medicine, the first one is food or uh, nutrition and hydration, let's say. So that's the food that we're taking in, whether it's good or bad, but also the level of hydration that we're taking into. Uh, the next one would be physical activity. So not just exercise, but anything that involves us moving around. So that's nutrition and hydration and uh, physical activity. And most people, if you ask them, what do you do to be healthy? What are the options that you have? Most people would say diet and exercise. And there you go. Those are the first two. Now, other than that, you have stress management, you have sleep and restoration, you have social environment. You have, uh, let's see, I'm doing them out of order here. I know avoiding toxic exposure is one. So let me make sure I hit all of them. Uh, that is physical activity, nutrition and hydration, proper stress management, sleep and restoration, avoiding toxic exposure, uh, exposure and uh, social environment. I think I hit all six there. But the first one we're going to cover right now is healthy food, which I'll admit by itself is a boring ass topic. Who, who cares? We all know we should eat healthy foods and we should avoid the unhealthy foods. No shit. Uh, but how do we make this more interesting? Well, we're talking about enhancing the brain to make the brain as strong as it could possibly be. And the foods that you eat are extremely important for building a healthy brain and uh, optimizing cognitive function because the brain uses a lot of calories, believe it or not, and we need a steady supply of nutrients in order for our brain to function. Uh, 
Now, on the flip side of that, taking in the nutrients and getting the healthy, good quality nutrients that we need, on the flip side of that, eating crap food, tons of sugar, alcohol, things like that can have a negative impact on our brain. And not just in the short term. If we do this long term enough, if we do this sort of thing chronically, it can have a long-term negative impact on our brain, especially with something like sugar, with that glycemic variability, which means that your blood sugar is going up and down very frequently. Some people refer to Alzheimer's as type 3 diabetes. So we know type 2 diabetes, of course, is a blood sugar issue. And um, well, it's much more than that, but that's one way to describe it. And Alzheimer's has been described as type 3 diabetes. And so there is plenty of research to show a link between chronic high sugar consumption and diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So that's, of course, past optimizing the brain. That's just trying to prevent illnesses that can uh, impact the brain if we're not careful. And the reason that happens with sugar, high levels of sugar, is because sugar can oxidize the brain, which means that it kind of ages the brain. When you think of the word oxidation, you can think of rust. When you see rust on metal, that's a sign of oxidation. And so our brain can become oxidized by eating excessive sugar chronically. And that's an extremely controversial topic. Like I said, these fitness people, they, they'll go to war to defend sugar and carbohydrates. And uh, it's, an, it's very contentious. Uh, but it depends what lens you are looking at this through because if your world is a fitness trainer and all you really care about or you're like you're just talking to bodybuilders and you're telling them yeah you have to eat tons of broccoli and rice and chicken and it doesn't matter uh you know anything else it just matters that you're eating enough food that's all we're worried about it's easy to get stuck in that mentality and really not challenge yourself any further but we know from the science that it's much more complicated than that and if you look at the brain, eating tons and tons of carbohydrates that are uh, high glycemic index is not the healthiest thing for your brain. But beyond food, hydration is also very important. You need to drink water, which is imperative for a healthy functioning brain. I'll just leave it there because uh, I'm trying to make this as not boring as possible. And maybe that's just because me, I, I talk about this stuff all the time. I'm very familiar with this. I know Andrew Huberman talks about this sort of thing and, and people love it. So um, on that note, the brain is mostly fat. I don't know if you know that. The brain is mostly fat. And that's why it's important to have good fats in your diet. This phenomenon in the United States of reduced fat or fat-free foods also comes from some of these errors in thinking around food where we just, oh, well, fat is the culprit. It's the bad guy. Let's just get rid of the fat. And therefore, this food is much healthier for you to eat. It's such a backward way of thinking to, to let's take this food and make it not natural by d doing some kind of artificial process to it and that should be fine right uh it's it's kind of silly when you really think about it but it does serve its purpose you know i know people would push back on that but uh before i get carried away on tangents here fat is important for the brain and 
particularly omega-3 fats, which you can get from uh, fish oil is one of the most commonly known sources of that. Uh, you could take supplements. You could get it in foods like certain seeds, nuts, walnuts, for instance. Uh, and omega-3s are important because they protect the brain and support cognitive function. So what else? What else around food can we discuss to build a healthy brain? Uh, gut health is extremely important. I know probiotics are something that are commonly discussed. I have people all the time asking me what's the best probiotic they can take. And uh, the answer is it depends uh, because in some instances, taking a probiotic can actually create new symptoms or make certain symptoms worse. So probiotics aren't something that should just be taken uh, because you feel like it. They should be taken with a purpose. And so that might involve testing your gut and seeing what's going on there or even talking to your doctor might be a, a good move uh, to see what exactly is going on. Do you even need to take something like probiotics? But beyond taking probiotics, having a healthy gut microbiome, a healthy environment in your gut is important because we have something called the gut-brain axis. There is a type of connection between your brain and your gut. You might have heard, uh, well, Serotonin is something that most people are familiar with. Serotonin is the chemical that's often associated with feeling good. That's why they give people who are depressed SSRI antidepressants. That is selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor antidepressants. They mess with the serotonin in your brain. What is not often discussed is the fact that that serotonin is produced in the gut. So by having a healthy gut, we can be more likely to ensure that we have a good production of serotonin leading to a better mood. And we do know that there's a connection between gut health and mood. If you've ever felt like your gut is a little bit off, your stomach's upset, immediately you're in a bad mood. I don't know if it's possible to even be in a good mood if you're having gut issues. Certainly much tougher. But that gut-brain axis is a type of communication pathway between the, the brain and the gut. And what happens when the gut is unhealthy is, well, inflammation, that word we discussed earlier. If the gut is inflamed, it can lead to uh, inflammation elsewhere in the body, which can affect brain function. And that's where you can run into conditions like depression or anxiety, which there is a great book on this called... I think it's the inflamed brain or brain inflamed. It's one of the two. Uh, either way, if you search for one of those, you'll find it. And it discusses how that serotonin model of depression is inaccurate and based on a false premise. But rather, depression primarily comes from being in an inflamed state. Interesting. So uh, I'm just throwing that out there as a claim that somebody else has made with research to support it. And that's something worth looking into, I think, especially in the context here of the brain. We want to reduce inflammation so we can have a top performing brain. And that gut microbiome is what's going to help us keep our gut healthy. So when we eat certain processed foods or we drink alcohol excessively or we're just eating tons of sugar chronically, that can 
have a negative impact on our gut microbiome, reducing the amount of healthy bacteria in our gut, or even causing dysbiosis, which is a type of imbalance in the gut. It can lead to the growth of conditions like SIBO or candida type of fungus, SIBO being small intestinal bacteria overgrowth, which for some people can take years to recover from, uh, depending on their diet and the condition of their gut health. Um, so there are a lot of different factors. If one little tiny thing is off in the body that can have a major impact on the brain, uh, especially with what we're talking about here, gut health and the foods that we eat. So that's why it's incredibly important to maintain consistently a healthy diet if we're interested in long-term brain health, uh, not just for performance where we want to be on top of things on a day-to-day -day basis, but also to prevent disease and reduce the risk of developing neurodegenerative conditions. And we do that by eating a balanced diet that includes a variety of fruits and vegetables and uh, all that healthy stuff, real foods. Not foods that have an advertisement that come in a box or a bag with uh, catchphrases and neat characters and pretty colors. No, I mean real foods that come from the earth, whether that's, you know, fruits, nuts, vegetables, meat. Yes, meat can certainly be healthy. We'll have to save uh, the demonization of beef for another episode. A lot of people think that beef or meat is unhealthy which is extremely untrue and uh, based on propaganda, my favorite word. So that's something I'm very excited to talk about. Maybe we'll convince some vegans or vegetarians to switch. Wouldn't that be great? I know they always try to get me to switch. Uh, but moving on from food and gut health, we're going to talk about how exercise can help brain health. And... Exercise is kind of like a drug. It has drug-like effects, meaning when somebody engages in exercise, especially strength or resistance training, uh, so many different things happen in the body that produce a positive result that I, I, I can't even list all of them here. It could take up the whole episode. So let's just list a few of them briefly. Exercise can improve cognitive function, and that's short and long-term. It can reduce the risk of cognitive decline and neurodegenerative diseases. Exercise can increase blood, blood flow to the brain. It can induce the growth of new brain cells and improve neuroplasticity. So neuroplasticity, if you've never heard that word, is a fancy word that means the brain can adapt to its environment. So for instance, if we're learning a new language, the neuroplasticity of our brain allows our brain to adapt to that new language. And the word itself, neuro, meaning the brain, neurology. Plasticity, meaning plastic, like it's moldable, like you can shape it. Neuroplasticity, the brain is like plastic that can be molded and shaped. So when we exercise, it actually increases the neuroplasticity, which makes our brain more positively adaptable. Uh, which is kind of an incredible thing. And even further, it can reduce inflammation and oxidative stress. There's that word again, oxidation. 
uh, both of which can damage the brain. So by exercising, we eliminate uh, eliminate some of those harmful variables that might be uh, having a negative toll on our brain. So what are some of the different types of exercise that can benefit brain health? Well, uh, there's really only three primary types, and I'm going to list them in uh, in order of most importance. So most importantly, first would be strength training. Uh, this is what builds up resilience. This is what makes you stronger. This is what prevents muscle wasting as you get older. Uh, it, it is the pinnacle of health is to have strength and engage in resistance training. And that means different things for different people. Uh, I'm not saying you have to become some sort of Arnold Schwarzenegger, mega bodybuilder type thing. Not at all. Uh, but people of all ages can engage in strength training. Doesn't mean you have to use weights, but you also get other benefits from strength training, uh, like with cardiovascular exercise. So instead of cardiovascular exercises, like running, biking, uh, swimming, stuff like that. But with strength training, you can implement that in certain ways where you get some of the benefits of cardiovascular exercise as well. I don't want to get too nitty gritty into exercise because just like food, that can be very boring. So we're going to focus on how this can help the brain. Um, but cardiovascular exercise is something that you have to be very careful with. It, it, it certainly has some benefits, but doing only cardiovascular exercise chronically, like people who run marathons all the time, very often have heart issues, cardiac damage. Some of them just drop dead while they're running. Um, so it is something that caution, any exercise should, you should use caution. Um, but cardiovascular exercise in particular is one that, uh, you might want to be a little more cautious about, but you know, strength training too. If you're lifting heavy weights, you could injure, I've injured my back. I've herniated discs doing weightlifting. So you can similarly, uh, experience permanent harm and damage if you're not careful with your exercise. Uh, which is why it's important to be careful, use good form, prevent injury, do your dynamic stretching beforehand and your static stretching after, all of which are really good for the brain. Uh, but even as a component of the brain, this type of activity, exercise, is good for the nervous system. Um, and that's really what happens when you exercise. It's not just your muscles are getting bigger or you're getting faster. Your nervous system is getting stronger. Um, which is it, 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 I mean, the epitome of a healthy brain is a healthy nervous system because that nervous system is what regulates the brain's function in coordination with the rest of the body. It can help to reduce stress. So if you experience the stress of exercise, well, that makes you more resilient to other types of stress, uh, especially other physical stresses. Uh, and then exercise can also improve sleep quality and reduce the symptoms of anxiety and depression. But we all know that the long-term benefits of exercise are many. So not only do they make you physically healthier, healthier and feel better and all these things that we know and, and look better, of course, that's uh, the reason a lot of people go to the gym, but it can improve cognitive function, reduce the risk of cognitive decline, promote the growth of new brain cells, improve neuroplasticity, some of all of this I've, I've said already, uh, but 
a daily routine can provide long-term benefits. So since we've talked about the food and the gut health and the exercise and all these uh, little topics around health that can contribute to a healthy brain, this is probably a good place to plug myself and my business, Red Pill Health and Wellness. So if you're new to the show, Hi, my name is Mike Vera. I am a board certified health and wellness coach, which is a certification process that is done through the National Board of Medical Examiners. That means that I had to sit in a room for like four hours taking a test uh, that credentials me to work with a medical team. That's really the point of this board certification for health coaching is you have the nurses that prep the patients. Uh, you have the doctors that see the patients and diagnose and prescribe, and then you have the health coaches that follow up with those prescriptions. And, and I don't mean pharmaceuticals in this instance. I mean, hey, my my patient here needs to eat right and exercise and sleep better and all these different things around health. Uh, so you, the health coach, you're going to help them. And, and so that's me. That's where I come into the picture and um, help clients with their health. So if that's something that is of interest to you, you might want to check out my website, redpillhealthandwellness.com uh, or mikevira.com. That goes to the same place. And see, the thing is with health, a lot of people know the things that they should do. They know that they should exercise. They know that they should eat healthier. They know all these other little things, it, but it's easy to get stuck and to make the right decisions. There's so much conflicting information out there and that can paralyze us and, and prevent us from moving forward. Or maybe we have moved forward and we slip up and, and we need to figure out where we went wrong. Or There are so many different approaches. And the beauty of health coaching is that it's individualized to you. This isn't a cookie cutter thing. This is, you know, where are you trying to get to? Where are you now? How do we get you there? Um, and so, to get to the point here, I have a, a health coaching program on my website called Red Pill Your Health, which offers all the information you could need, you could ever need to make the best decisions about your health. And if you want more than that, there's the option for the live Q&A with the Round Pill Red Table or the uh, Red Pill Round Table, rather, where you can get the help of me or another board certified health coach directly in a group setting. And that's a lot of fun too. So you get to meet other healthy and awake critical thinkers. But there's also uh, a whole lot of other stuff on the site, especially if you go to MikeVera.com, you'll see all my social media and everything else. Uh, but at the very least, if you're not ready for that yet, I would appreciate it. If you like the video, uh, leave a comment with anything at all. Just let me know that you're watching or uh, let me know what stood out to you. But I still have a lot more left in this episode, uh, but I just wanted to get that uh, self-advertisement in there. But now moving on to some more fun things that can help us improve our brain beyond the boring diet and exercise would be cold exposure. And people shiver when I say this one. Um, cold exposure is something that is not at all pleasant, even for someone like myself, who has been doing this for many years. It's not something I really look forward to, but I'm always glad that I did it because cold exposure can very much help the brain. It can help the body overall. Uh, cold exposure can convert white adipose tissue. That's the fat hanging over your hips, the fat 
in your belly, all that not so pretty fat on our bodies. That's white adipose tissue. Cold exposure can convert that fat into brown adipose tissue, which is very much more dense, mitochondrially dense, meaning, well, it means a lot. I don't want to get too nitty gritty into that. Uh, But when you have more brown adipose tissue, having that extra mitochondria, which is the difference between those two types of fat, it has more mitochondria, means that you have more energy. It's kind of the essence, it's part of the essence of health as well. It's a good biological marker for health is a high level of mitochondrial density. Uh, what else? It, it Brown adipose tissue, brown fat is something that keeps you warmer. So if you've ever seen someone like Wim Hof, who has climbed Mount Everest in his shorts something like 26 times and has trained other people to do it easily as well. Uh, These people have higher levels of brown adipose tissue, which allow them to sustain cold exposure for longer than people who have not been adapted to the cold in this way. They do not have higher levels of brown adipose tissue, therefore they get cold more easily. This is a fun way to approach enhancing your brain. Uh, When you are exposed to cold, it has an effect on your vagus nerve, which runs from basically behind your face all the way down your body. Uh, And that's implicated in stress and being nervous. And so if you have some kind of performance or speech or job interview and you want to calm your nerves a little bit, you can expose your face to the cold reasonably and carefully. And that can sort of pre-stress yourself in a way where by the time you get to that anxious activity, you will feel better than if you had not exposed yourself to the cold. So it has a a direct impact on the nervous system. And that is whether we are talking about cold showers, cold baths or ice baths, or cryotherapy. They are all a little bit different, but of course they all involve the cold. So they're all similar. These types of activities can improve circulation, increase alertness, improve cognitive function, decrease inflammation, improve mood, and... It's a fun challenge to, like I said earlier, it's not exactly the most fun thing in the world. You almost never want to do it by the time you get to that activity and you're looking at the ice bath and thinking, this is going to suck. But then you do it, you force yourself to do it, and it's always, always, always worth it. What else? So we talked about the cold. What about the heat? Saunas. Heat exposure. So very similarly, saunas are good for brain health because they improve blood flow or increase blood flow and oxygen delivery to the brain, which is certainly important for a healthy functioning brain. It can increase the production of BDNF. This is something that maybe you've heard about, uh, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is important for brain plasticity and cognitive function. You'll often see studies in health that look at BDNF as a marker to see if it enhances your brain health in some way. 
So you'll see exercise implicated in increasing BDNF, saunas implicated. So there's all kinds of studies on, on uh, things that increase BDNF. And as we're saying, saunas are one of them. Uh, so saunas are important for brain plasticity and cognitive function. Why else are saunas important for brain health? Well, they they can increase heart rate and circulation, just like exercise, which can improve blood flow to the brain. Saunas can also improve immune function and reduce inflammation, which also can benefit the brain. Uh, this is unique to saunas here that they can, uh, by doing saunas, that can increase production of heat shock proteins which are something that can protect brain cells from stress and damage. This is probably the most important part of doing a sauna is by actually enduring the heat. It increases heat shock proteins, which are an important part of the body to make you more resilient to stress. So the increased heat shock proteins are what makes it so that the next time you go in the sauna and it's hotter than last time, it you know, you'll feel like you've increased your strength to the sauna or the heat exposure, just like with similar to exercise, you know, where you're lifting a hundred pounds this week and then you build up your, your muscles. And then the next time you get to it, the hundred pounds isn't quite as heavy and you can lift heavier weight. So the sauna is similar by exposing yourself to the heat. You make it so that you can expose yourself to higher degrees of heat. So what else? Well, maybe I should throw out some precautions here with both the cold exposure and saunas. So first, let me go back to cold exposure. Be careful if you're doing ice baths, don't submerge yourself fully so you don't drown or something like that. If you're in a uh, in cold water, maybe you lose consciousness somehow. Maybe you're doing breathing exercises or the shock is too much or who knows. Just be careful. Uh, but the same thing with saunas here, you want to be careful to prevent dehydration or electrolyte imbalance. So you, you don't want to drink distilled water while you're in the sauna. You want to make sure you're getting plenty of electrolytes, which you can get from something like coconut water, or they have uh, electrolyte packets that they, they're selling all over Amazon now. Uh, but these types of activities are also contraindicated for people with certain health conditions. Like if you are susceptible to strokes, if you have high blood pressure, uh, maybe you should not be getting in the sauna or at least pushing it too hard in the sauna, maybe even the cold shower, or the cold bath too. All right, moving on to the next one here, sleep. This is, you know, the, we can go through this one pretty quickly. Sleep is healthy for the brain. When you're asleep, that's when... It's improving your memory consolidation. That's when things are sort of repairing themselves in the body as a whole, but also in the brain. And the lymphatic system is at play here. Because when I did my research for this, some of the sources describe it as when you are asleep, this is what helps your brain clear out toxic waste, which I just hate how that's put because that's a very unscientific sounding term and it's also a term that um it you know a lot of people recognize that as a type of bullshit thing um but there is still an element of truth it is phrased poorly but if you look at what the lymphatic system in the body is it is kind of a 
toxic removal sewage or drainage system. So people fail to take that into account when they are quick to dismiss this idea of uh, eliminating toxic exposures from the body. Uh, we have processes for that in the body, like the lymphatic system. Um, but I, I think the the pushback to that word toxin came from um, what do they call it? Like snake oil salesmen or charlatans trying to sell you some bullshit thing. Hey, buy my detox product, and then you have pushback on that, saying, "Well, you know, you're you're selling snake oil." So that's you know another controversial topic in health is the idea of toxins in the body. I hate even saying that word. Um, but when you are asleep, it removes some of the junk from your brain through systems like the lymphatic system. Uh, but what else? It's not just sleep quantity. It's not just getting that eight hours of sleep more or less, but it's also about getting good quality sleep. So we might sleep for eight hours, but we could wake up feeling like we haven't gotten any sleep at all. That certainly happens. And there are other times where we get maybe half the sleep we usually do, and we wake up confused why we feel so refreshed. So sleep is an interesting one, but quantity and quality are both important for a healthy brain. If you go without sleep for long enough, your brain will fail to function in any meaningful way if you deprive yourself of sleep. Um, I mean, it, it'll certainly put you in a bad mood if you don't get a lot of sleep. That's like the first thing that happens to people when they don't get enough sleep is they get cranky, almost as if to the body telling the person, hey, I'm, if you're not going to get sleep, I'm going to make sure this is not a fun experience for you. So you better get to sleep. But other than sleep, stress management is incredibly important for the brain because the brain is what is kind of processing at least in part, processing the stress. So stress management, things like meditation can improve and sharpen the brain. Not only to just reduce stress, but meditation in particular can increase gray matter volume and improve neural connections in the brain. So gray matter is that outer layer of the brain. And by meditating, we are growing that outer layer of the brain which is, you know, growing the brain is a good thing. I could get more detailed into the neurology of that, but we'll save that for another episode. So even more than increasing gray matter in the brain, things like meditation can decrease cortisol levels and improve mood and cognitive function, much like some of these other aspects of health that we pay attention to. But if meditation is not your thing, if it's too boring to sit there and focus on your breath, which is the point. That's the exercise is to fight past that boredom. But if that's not your thing, uh, yoga is something that people like. There are other breathing exercises that people try and um, they can be incredibly impactful in a positive way for the brain. But what else? What other things can we do for the brain? This one uh, is not so fun, but a dopamine detox. So we live in a world now where dopamine is readily available. So we can get dopamine from flipping through our phones, flipping through social media, going to play video games, chatting with friends. Every Everywhere we look in today's society, we can get easy, low-hanging fruit, dopamine. 
And that's a problem because that rewires our brain to constantly look for quick, easy rewards. That's what we're doing. Every time we pull out our phone to get that dopamine hit and flip through our phones, we are doing ourselves a disservice. Long term, we are creating a poorly functioning brain every time we pull out our phones. And not just our phones, every time we eat some uh, like sweet snacks, like really uh, like sugary foods, every time we do those uh, easy high dopamine activities, we are doing ourselves a disservice. And so that's that can make it very tough to do the hard things that we might need to do. So the boring things that we might need to do, things like exercise, things like reading, things that would be self-improvement activities. It can be harder to engage in those activities if we're constantly training our brain to do whatever gives us the most dopamine in the shortest amount of time. It's really unhealthy. And it's also incredibly difficult in, in today's world to not watch TV, to not flip through our phones, to not eat convenient, good-tasting foods all the time. Uh, but don't shoot the messenger here. I'm just here to tell you the science. Um, so what else? Social environment can have an impact on our brain. This is really uh, mostly mood related, but that doesn't mean it should be dismissed because there is a scientific term known as a psychosomatic response. So if we are around people that are cranky and miserable and negative and mentally unhealthy because of the psychosomatic response, that can sort of induce that same things in ourselves that can make us cranky because moods are kind of contagious. And not only that, moods can also, like our psychology, can affect our physicality. That's the word psychosomatic. So psycho meaning like the, the brain, that's psychology. Uh, somatic meaning the body. So psychosomatic meaning that things of the mind can affect the body. So when we are around a poor social environment, people who are maybe um, just really mentally unhealthy, like dangerous drug addicts, low lives, losers, not, it's probably not nice to say, but I'm, there are people on this planet who might be, who you could call that. I'm not trying to be mean to those people, but when we surround ourselves with that type of unhealthy or negative mentality, that can carry on towards us. And I'm, again, I'm really not trying to be mean here, but I don't know anybody who says to themselves, you know what, the best move for me right now is let me surround myself, uh, surround myself with uh, drug addict losers who have no ambition and want to accomplish anything. Um, which I, I mean that as a very specific group of people, I'm not saying all drug addicts are losers. I know people who struggle with their addictions and I'm not judging them, uh, but I'm saying, you know, <laughs> I'm creating a mess for myself here. So let's move on. Toxic exposure. This is something I've talked about at length in one of my previous episodes on how toxic exposure is killing you. It's something that people don't like to think about. 
at least until recently, because if you've been watching the, well, actually not if you've been watching the news, because the news has been censoring this story. Um, maybe if you've been watching the local news or if you've been doing your due diligence to see what is actually going on in the world instead of trusting what your TV tells you, you would see that there has been a train derailment in Ohio that has leaked all sorts of toxic chemicals into the land, the air, and the water. And, oh man, I have so many things to say about this. Um, I think it's interesting how for the past three years, the media, the narrative, the TV has been telling you to put a mask on. This air is unhealthy for you to breathe. But when a train derails and releases toxic chemicals into the water, food, air, land, they say, no, it's fine. Don't worry about it. This air is safe to breathe. This is what happens when you trust authorities to protect you and uh, especially with the environment. I mean, these people are clearly not protecting the environment. Uh, they're, <laughs> they're sending all their money over to Ukraine and sending none of it to Ohio. Uh, but I'm not here to talk about politics. I just think it, it affects our health. It's worth getting angry about that the government tells you, hey, we have this institution here, the Environmental Protection Agency, and uh, they're not protecting anything. They're just creating uh, narratives and excuses for what happened and saying, hey, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, so that people should be angry about that. Um, but so my point here is, is people are talking a little bit more about avoiding toxic exposure uh, because certain Sources of toxic exposure, especially heavy metals like lead and mercury, can have long-term effects on brain function, and that can happen by leading to inflammation, oxidative stress, it can damage DNA or other molecules. It's certainly no good. Um, so I could say a little bit more on that, but I don't want to get myself into trouble going off about the EPA. Um but when when you look at at some of these chemicals like lead, mercury, and some of the ones that I discussed in my previous episode, some of the most egregious toxic exposures can go through the blood brain barrier. So your your brain has a type of firewall, a a uh, protecting barrier called the blood brain barrier. And this functions to protect your brain from foreign invaders to keep itself strong and healthy. Uh, some of these chemicals can cross the blood-brain barrier, which means it's going to infiltrate and absorb into your brain and could possibly have a negative effect, an unhealthy effect on your brain long term. So just another reason to be hypervigilant and scrutinize the things that you consume, whether it's food, uh, drinks, or whether it's a you know some type of packaging that you're getting your food in, um, or any of that, uh, or especially if it's an authority figure telling you, "Hey, this is fine. Just trust it. You can consume this safely. It's healthy." A hundred percent of the time, that should be a red flag. So. Some people use drugs and alcohol. That's the world we live in. And unfortunately, those types of behaviors are not good for the brain. Um, it can 
increase the risk of cognitive decline when these activities are engaged in long term. But also with something like drugs, you have to wonder what it's cut with because it's not like the people doing cocaine in uh, any part of the world are doing pure uncut coke, right? They're, so it's not only the drugs themselves that you have to worry about because the coke can certainly, like any of these drugs, can have a negative impact on your brain, but it you're not buying this at a regulated store, right? Who knows what is actually in there that could have a negative impact on your brain um, or kill you. Your brain doesn't function very well when you're dead. Um, so if you do want to hear more about toxic exposure, definitely check out, I think it was my last, my very last episode, uh, number eight on toxic exposure. Or maybe it was six. It's one of them. Uh, but we're getting close to the end here. And now we're at one of my absolute favorite things to do for enhancing the brain. And that is lion's mane. So lion's mane is a type of research or a type of mushroom that has plenty of research to support the fact that it can induce neurogenesis. There's that word again, neuro meaning brain, genesis meaning like new. So it's producing neurons in the brain. Lion's mane can be ordered as a supplement that you can take it in pills, you can put in your smoothie as a powder. Um, but it's not like a one-time thing. It's not like taking Adderall like some people do where you take lion's mane and then, oh, wow, I have a good brain for the day. Nope, that's not how it works. This is something that when you do it consistently over time, you consume adequate amounts of lion's mane that can grow your brain, uh, and, and increase cognitive function. This is something I've been doing for a very long time, and I give it uh, a lot of credit for helping me to feel as sharp as I do. Lion's mane is something that I'll never get out of my health routine. Um, and, and there is plenty of research to support that. Lion's mane is incredible, and it's, it's a mushroom. It's good for you. So studies have shown that lion's mane contains compounds. Let's see if I can say this. Arinocenes and heresinones. I definitely butchered that, but um, I just wanted to tell you the actual compounds that are in the research because those compounds can stimulate nerve growth and improve synaptic plasticity. That's for all intents and purposes, just that neuroplasticity that we talked about before. So it makes the brain more positively adaptable. And this is true for anyone, whether you're talking about young folks or whether you're talking about your average person uh, like myself, or whether you're talking about some old people who might be developing neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. There is research to show that lion's mane can benefit those populations by reducing symptoms of memory problems. So that out of everything that I've listed, if you want the lowest hanging fruit, if you don't feel like exercising, you don't feel like eating healthy, you don't feel like doing all these other things, which you should if, if you're interested in a healthy brain, lion's mane is probably the lowest hanging fruit because you can just put it in your smoothie. You could take it as a pill. It's super easy. Um, 
or something like, so I, I have some other supplements or herbs and things like that here. Omega-3 fatty acids, which I mentioned in the food section. Uh, so fish oil is something that can be taken that is very anti-inflammatory, even to the point of being compared to something like Motrin or aspirin. Some people recommend high dose omega-3 fatty acids if you have a headache. Um, because it, it's so anti-inflammatory that it can reduce inflammation in the brain. Um, and it does much more than that. It can, uh, there's a lot of studies for fish oil or omega threes showing how it can increase cognitive performance. So that's another one that, uh, with lion's mane, I take that every day. I highly recommend considering it. Um, some of the other ones that people might be familiar with curcumin, which is an active ingredient in, uh, turmeric has anti-inflammatory properties, uh, big time anti-inflammatory properties, especially when you take it with, um, uh, an MCT, a, a, a fat and black pepper. Uh, there are a few specific studies that show that that combination can increase the, bioabsorption from curcumin or, or of curcumin from turmeric. Uh, but I don't want to make this too technical. So other than curcumin, ginkgo biloba is maybe one that you've heard of as an herb that is often in, uh, if you ever see supplements that are advertised as this can enhance your brain sort of thing, ginkgo biloba is almost always there. And is one of the more well-researched and it's been around for a while. And it has even been shown to improve cognitive function in people with dementia and may have potential in treating other neurodegenerative diseases. Here's a point that I have in my notes that is sort of out of order. I should have said this in the food section, but eat your colors. We say this in health coaching a lot, eat the rainbow, some people say, but that conjures up images of Skittles, which is not what I'm talking about here. So if you look uh, at foods, natural, real foods, especially in the produce section of your grocery store, you'll see all kinds of purples, reds, yellows, blues, uh, you know, blueberries, bananas, leafy green, leafy greens, um, red strawberries, all these different colors. Uh, they all serve different functions in the body's uh, body. So uh, there are so many intricate little details and all that. But so the fruits, for instance, have uh, polyphenols, which are good for the brain, good for overall health. Um, and you see that a lot in the the dark colored, like so blueberries, blackberries. Uh, what else? All these things are good for improved brain function. Now I do want to finish here with some of the more controversial things. So first, let me, let me say coffee is a double-edged sword. I know a lot of people to help their brain feel like it's performing better. Coffee is one that a lot of research shows it's really good. Some research shows it's really bad. Um, it really depends on a whole lot of different factors. It, it, how are you making the coffee? What water are you using? Uh, is the coffee clean? And where is the coffee sourced from? And is it fresh or is it stale? And um, what state are you in? Are you fatigued? Because if you are experiencing HPA axis dysfunction, well, consuming coffee is going to maybe make you feel more tired. So 
I don't want to go too much into coffee. This isn't an episode on on coffee because we could talk about that for two hours. Uh, but I just wanted to throw it out there that it is kind of a double edged sword because it, it they're just you know it could improve your energy, but long term it could also make you worse. So this isn't an endorsement or a denouncement of coffee, but I just wanted to bring it up. So uh, controversial cannabis. Most people do not think of cannabis as a way to enhance your brain. As a matter of fact, many people think it's the opposite. Many people think that cannabis can hurt your brain. And that can be true, just like with uh, what I was just talking about. It depends on on some factors. If you're getting some shit off the street that's contaminated with pesticides and heavy metals and who knows what else, that's not going to be healthy. But we do know from some of the actual scientific studies in a lab with you know medical quality scientific grade stuff that cannabis can be neuro protective thc and cbd as well as a few other components in cannabis can be neuroprotective meaning it protects the brain and i've heard this described as a type of battery saver mode so if you have high levels of stress all the time if you were chronic st- chronically stressed out that is very unhealthy for the brain um, so you might see that from the use, the appropriate legal and safe use of cannabis, it can actually put your brain into a type of battery saver mode and uh, mitigate against that stress, that chronic stress that can be very unhealthy. So that's, you know, there's some arguments to be had there because you could say, well, maybe it's not the cannabis itself. Maybe it's just the alleviation of the stress. What if there are other ways to alleviate the stress? And, and, you know, so there's a lot, but, but there is clear research to show that cannabis can uh, be neuroprotective and these compounds can reduce inflammation and protect against oxidative stress. And in some instances, promote neurogenesis that the promotion of new neurons in the brain. Uh, But we also know that for some people, cannabis may have potential in treating neurodegenerative diseases and other conditions that affect brain function. Now, as always, more research is needed to uh, fully understand the implications of that. But I think it's interesting how cannabis, something that has been demonized for many years in society, can have some pretty neat positives or healthy benefits for the brain when used appropriately, legally, safely, and carefully, of course. I'm not advocating illegal drug use. I know in the United States, it depends what state you live in. But the last one that I wanted to discuss here is very interesting because when we think about health, this is a topic that is never talked about but has incredible incredible implications for our health. And there's a person pioneering the field of blue light exposure and circadian health. And his name is Dr. Jack Cruz. I've been following this guy for a long time. And his case is that our environment, our lighting environment can have dramatic effects on our health. And he even goes as far as saying that to pay attention to what you're eating and like, oh, reducing sugar and exercise and all these things that we've already discussed, he kind of indicates that it's a waste of time if you are not paying attention to your lighting. And you see me here, if you're watching, you see I have my 
blue light blocking glasses because I'm surrounded by lights from every angle. Literally, I have my laptop screen. I have my tablet screen with my notes. I have the ring light directly in front of me. I have the lights in the ceiling. And then I have two lights that are lighting up my green screen, which I guess shatters the illusion there. Uh, but why is lighting no good for your health? Here's the most simplistic way I can explain it. Blue light is a certain level of lighting. It's a certain intensity of lighting. We know that your circadian rhythm is your body's biological clock. So your circadian rhythm is your internal clock. It's what tells your body when you should be getting ready to go to sleep and be tired. And it tells you when you should wake up and have energy. The problem is with the artificial lighting in our environment, it's sending confusing signals to our circadian rhythm. So when we're laying there in bed trying to go to sleep at 11 o'clock at night and we're staring at a phone screen that's sending blue light into our eyeballs, well, that blue light is the same intensity of the sun around noon. So what's happening is looking at the phone is telling our body that it's noon. That is going to disrupt the production of melatonin and all the other chemicals and, and hormones that are responsible for ensuring a, healthier, a healthy circadian rhythm function, optimal health, optimal brain function. So every time we're looking at a screen, it's resetting our body's internal clock. The lighting in our environment regulates many physiological processes and i'm referring to the sun here so as human beings we need sun exposure that sun exposure regulates many physiological processes including the sleep wake cycles hormone secretion and metabolism so these are all the things that we don't really think of uh, around our health because we can't it's not like we can open up our chest and see a clock ticking in there that's not how this works it might be easier if we could do that. But those disruptions that we cannot see, those disruptions to the circadian rhythm can have negative effects on our brain function. This is something I want to talk to Dr. Jack Cruz about uh, because I have so many questions. You know, one counter to this is using red light therapy. Uh, that, that, I mean, ideally you can go outside and actual, actually get sun exposure. Um, there's a lot, but I have a lot of questions, so maybe I should leave it there. Uh, but natural sunlight exposure is definitely important, especially through our retina. I I've heard Dr. Jack Cruz talk specifically about how it affects your retina in your eyeball. But then again, there's skin photoreceptors as well, which respond to the light. So you know, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot to consider here, but I think I've said everything I wanted to say. We've covered a lot from food to exercise to saunas and cold exposure and cannabis and blue light and all these different things for brain health. So I want to know what stood out to you the most. What have you tried? What are you going to try? What do you disagree with? What do you want to hear next? Answer, please, at least one of those. Um, make this a little engaging and other than that 
I don't know what tomorrow's episode is. We'll see, but I think we'll leave it there. So stay healthy, stay awake, and I'll see you next time. 